Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 21 is where we're going to spend our time together. Next week, Lord willing, we'll jump back into the book of Acts. I have no real reason to preach this random message except this may be one of my favorite passages. I shared it with the students a few weeks back at Overflow, and I realized I don't think I've ever preached it here, so why not? It's the summer. It's, I'm preaching after a couple weeks, so let's dive into it. Sound good? This evening we're looking at a new way of seeing, and we're going to be here together in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 21. Let's read together, or I'll read and you can follow along. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. So from now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. Verse 17. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness or justice of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. I love this passage. There's so much to be said and unpacked, but tonight I want to take it from this approach. We need a new way of seeing. We need a new way to see others, to see ourselves, and of seeing God. Many of you in the next few moments are going to say, yeah, I do see others that way, or I try. I really do want to see myself that way, like we just sang about who you say I am. I'm a child of God. And I do see God that way. Great. I'm glad you're working that out. This then for you is a reminder to keep your focus because I believe that so much pain and division and brokenness in our world is a failure to see others, ourselves, and God rightly. Paul discovered this new way of seeing and it changed his outlook and it changed his occupation. He saw himself 
warring against Jesus and Jesus' people. But now he's an ambassador for Jesus and the kingdom of God. It changed his outlook and his occupation. And if we allow this passage to really get embedded into our heads and hearts, we can transform our outlook and see our occupation in light of new creation. If we get this right, it can transform the world around us. And if we get this wrong, we'll perpetuate the same old ways of seeing others as enemies, difference, and people to be feared, maligned, or judged. So we need to examine the way we see the world and allow God's newness to remake us. So this is where we're headed, seeing others, ourselves, and God. And that first big question, how do we see others? During my time of isolation, I made a mistake. I put Twitter back on my phone. (laughs) I'm told that I'm a lurker because lurkers look at Facebook and look at Twitter or look at Instagram, but they don't what? They don't engage, they don't post. I'll like some of your stuff, I'll love some of your stuff, but I've bowed out of this conversation a while back. But it was NBA free agency and I like Twitter, so I put it on my phone and during my time of isolation, I'm scrolling. And it took me a minute And by a minute, I mean several days to catch what I was doing. Because a third of my timeline is NBA, a third of my timeline is news, the other third is a bunch of Christians and their different controversies and conflicts and blogs against this and reactions to that and threads about this and threads about that. A lot of times there's a lot of gold nuggets I'll tweet or copy or share and they wind up in sermons or thoughts in my journal, but not this time. Here I am isolated. I'm doom scrolling. Jalen Brunson is gone from the Mavericks. I'm already in a bad headspace. And I see controversy that turns into conflicts. And then I look at the replies and I say, this guy, can you believe it? And then what do you do on Twitter? You click their profile. And then you see a 140 character bio. And I did this short of a hundred times. Oh, it's that kind of person. No one's ever done this, right? Oh, it's that kind of Christian. Oh, it's this kind of troll. And it took me days to realize that what I was doing was making snap judgments. And when you make a snap judgment, you start to slot people. You start to organize the world into those kinds of people, that kind of person, and you take these human beings that are messy and mixed and complex, and you take their one post or their one position, and you slot them into that kind of person, and you turn a human being in their complexity, and you reduce them to a word. You are a story, you're not a word. You are an individual made up of all different kinds of nuance. You're not a word. 
that thing that person called you in fifth grade or when you're age 50. You're not just that. And yet here I am online for a week making snap judgments, reducing human beings, and I finally realized what snapped me out of it is when I was scrolling and lurking and I saw a post or a position that I didn't like or disagreed with from a person I knew, I was much more forgiving because I know something of their context and their story, and while I still disagreed and disliked what they were posting, I was able to look beyond the post to the person. So the answer to the question, how do we see others, boils down to this. From a human point of view that slots and snap in our judgment, or a new creation in waiting point of view, to look below the surface at their image-bearingness because whatever it means that God created us, we know from Genesis that he created us in his image in some way to reflect his goodness and creativity. And sometimes, listen, that image gets buried pretty deep through some muck and mire. But intrinsically, human beings bear the image of God. And because God created them, God loves them, God longs for them. And so they are imbued with dignity and an intrinsic worth because God loved his creation so much that he would send his only son to bring them back to himself, which is what our passage discusses. But it begins from this admission from Paul that he spent too much time seeing the world and others through a human point of view. Paul slotted Jesus. Paul was there when the first follower of the way was stoned and martyred And Paul nodded and clicked the like button. (laughs) Paul saw Jesus from a human point of view. This is what's going on in verse 16. He said, oh yeah, Jesus, he's a failed Messiah. He's a blasphemer. He is not who he says he is. But then Paul saw Jesus. You remember this in Acts chapter 9? And he didn't see, literally, until a supposed enemy, someone that he had slotted as an enemy to God and an enemy to God's way because he was following a failed Messiah. Ananias was sent by God to a blind Paul processing this Jesus that he was seeing for the first time, risen and on the road to Damascus, he did not see Jesus rightly until an enemy put his hands on Paul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 9, chapter 17. Paul saw Jesus, was blinded, 
and didn't really see who Jesus was until his enemy laid hands on him so that he might regain his sight and emerge from his old way of looking, his old way of living, opposed to God, to see Jesus rightly, and then to see the person standing next to him, Ananias, not as enemy, but as brother. Seeing Jesus led him to see others rightly, and it changed his outlook, and it changed his occupation, and he's telling the Corinthians, look, y'all are looking at me from a human point of view. You think I'm crazy? We'll talk about that more later. I saw Jesus as crazy also, but God is doing something here that has shifted my entire paradigm, and it's changed the way I see everyone and every thing. So Paul says, I used to see people from a human point of view snap judgments and slotting them, but now I see everyone below the surface as someone worth dying for, and I'm giving my life to announce to them, hey, you're invited back home to God under the reign of King Jesus. All of this is possible as we look back at our text. Verses 14 to 15 really boils down to this. Look, you've died to your old life. Your old way of living are just like the scales that fell from my eyes. Sweep them up, put them away, because you have been set free. Somehow, in the death of Jesus, we have been freed from our old allegiances, our old life, our old alliances, our sin, our shame, and mysteriously and powerfully, there's this phrase that he died for all, and what? Therefore, all died. He says this in Romans, and I can't begin to comprehend what's really in view here. But something happens mysteriously in the death of Jesus where he absorbs our sin, as you see at the end of our passage, but he also has liberated all of humanity. The trouble is, too many people are walking around like they're still dead. So we see others as meant to live to receive the new life that is available to them because of Christ's death and resurrection. That's what's happening in verses 14 to 15. So then verse 16 is the new way of seeing. So quit looking at others through the old lens like we used to. They are no longer nevers or lost causes. They're not yet's. They're not yet aware of the life-changing, world-altering death and resurrection of Jesus that has freed them to come back home to their Father and Creator. So quit looking at them as lost causes or enemies and see them as those who are not yet new creations. Because verse 17 says, if you're in Christ, the old is gone, the new is here. Literally, it's like Paul ran out of prepositions, he literally just says it in the original text like this. If anyone in Messiah, new creation. 
It's like he ran out of prepositions, he ran out of ink, he couldn't write fast enough of what his heart wanted to say. If anyone is in Christ, boom, new creation. Whatever unleashed on the world at Easter is present in the person that wakes up to the reality that God has loved them, he's longed for them, he's freed them, so quit living your old way and wake up to the new creation. It's here. How do we see others? One of my favorite songs is from a group, a duo called The Brilliance. And he says, when I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. And it just repeats for three minutes as if to remind us how world-changing this new way of seeing can be. But it's only possible when we're participating in the new creation. So that leads to this big question then. Has our divisive culture discipled us to a point where we can no longer see others we disagree with as those who are bought and sought by the reconciling love of God? Just sit with that question for a moment. This is the question I was wrestling with. So just in case you're wondering, let me offer you this very important disclaimer. Not all posts and positions are worth affirming. But I believe that all people are worth loving. This is the radical part of Jesus' ministry that we tend to minimize when he says things like, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. When he says, consider others, Paul says, in light of Jesus' example, as better than yourselves. Put the needs of others first. Don't grasp at power and shout everyone down. Although there's a time and place for this prophetic ministry, understand that you don't got to like and love their posts or positions. You ought to disagree with a good many of them vehemently. But underneath it all, to see others as not yet part of the new creation is what's going to transform our world. So we can go with the grain of the God who is reconciling and inviting people back to himself, or we can participate in a culture that snaps and slots and minimizes and divides because we disagree. Is there a way to disagree without disengaging? At some point, it is healthy to disengage. But probably most of the times, is there a way to see people beyond a human point of view and to look below the surface and see them as bought and sought and loved with unsurpassable worth by the reconciling love of God? If he can, God, can you help me? Because it's really hard right now. One of the spaces that has helped Amy and I is an imaginative prayer to see these people that we would have considered lost causes, the people that make our skin crawl when their name comes across the phone, and we imagine them next to us at the foot of the cross. In prayer, we bring those who would call us enemies, and we see brother and sister shoulder to shoulder 
just as much in need of new life as I was. We need a new way of seeing others. We also need a new way of seeing ourselves. Let's jump back into the text. In verse 18, we see that all of this is God's gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't love well enough. And he said, oh, you're kind of already doing it, so here's a little more juice with the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus to do it. No, no, it's God's gift given to you because God loves you, God longed for you, and he's brought us back to himself. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then he's given us this new job. Verse 19, before we get to the job, is so important. It is so important to understand what Paul says and what Paul doesn't say. See if you can catch it. There's a difference between saying that God reconciled the world to himself instead of God reconciling himself to the world. Do you see the difference I'm trying to pick at? There's a difference between God getting all of his anger and frustration out enough to the point where he can walk back into the room and say, okay, I'm ready to forgive you. What Paul says is that it wasn't God who needed his mind changed about us. It was us who needed our minds changed toward God. God saw a creation that had gone far afield. They had stolen their inheritance and spent it in wild living, and they had snubbed their nose at God and his way, and they come back because they realize they'll have a better time in God's house than they would out in the world, and God doesn't berate the prodigal children who cross the horizon on their way home. No, God was looking for them all along. God runs to them and embraces them because God's singular disposition to sinners is one of unrelenting love. We know that God sent his son Jesus because of his love, not because of his hate. God didn't send Jesus so that he could get his anger out on the whipping boy so that he could welcome prodigals back into his house. God's singular disposition towards sinners is that they come home, and so what God did in reconciling the world to himself is by removing every barrier that would impede their journey home. Do you see the difference? Do you see how vital it is to understand that we are children who ran a good long way and some days still do? But when we turn and walk our way back toward the Father's house, we are met with forgiveness. There are no hurdles to crawl because Jesus on the cross has removed them. God 
reconciled the world to himself. He has sent out 8 billion RSVPs to the heavenly banquet. The question is, are you going to respond? There is nothing stopping you. This is what the death of Christ, dying for all, that we might live, is about. So not only then do we see ourselves as welcomed children of God, but we become the ambassadors who go back out into the highways and byways of the world and say, hey, come back home. You've been eating pig slop over here in a far country. There's a lot better food in the Father's house, and there's still a place for you. So not only do we have a new outlook, we have a new occupation. Because Christ has borne our sins. He who knew sin became sin and absorbed sin so that every barrier to entry would be removed so we can go out freely and invite others in. So the answer to the question then, how do we see ourselves, might be this. As an ambassador, announcing the reality of reconciliation. How about this? To love others into new life with our words and works. We go out to invite others in. Come back to God. The North African bishop, St. Augustine, said that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. We know Restless people, yes? So we love them into new life, inviting them back. Let's walk home together to the table of our Father with our words and works. There's this quote that's wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and he says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Have you ever heard this? Have you never heard this? Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. He never said that. And it's not true. At some point, you've got to say, hey, Jesus is Lord. There is life and freedom in him. Come, follow him. This is good news. This is what we see Jesus and his disciples doing. And if we're followers of Jesus, we should follow his example and live like Jesus. When he said, the first words out of his mouth in the Gospel of Mark, repent and believe the good news. He gospeled. He said, turn back, come back, believe the good news that God reigns and it's happening here and now. It's within your reach. So we see ourselves in ambassadors using our words and works. We go out to the highways and byways, to the rock, to your neighborhood on your block, and we invite others in to their heart's true home. Here's a big idea I want to offer you, and this is a quote from a pastor and community developer in Chicago, the first half. He says, there are no God-forsaken places and people, only church-forsaken people and places. Ouch. I take that to mean in line with this passage. 
that God's door stays open. It's our job to keep our church's door open and invite others inside to meet the reconciling God. How many barriers has Jesus eliminated that we rush out to construct between our church and our world? If Jesus in this passage is true, that God in Christ did not count people's sins against them, if that's really true, if he wiped the slate clean, and you imagine this field between the Father's house and the porch and the horizons where all these people are looming, do we run out and start to build up more and more barriers to entry? Because they need to pray this prayer and do this and do that and do... Or, or, or is it a simple, come, follow me? What are the barriers? What are the doors that we keep closed for those people that we're still seeing with an old lens? Or is God's door always open? One of our trips to Montreal for a hot minute, Amy and I were praying and discerning about moving to Montreal to do what we're doing now up there with a lot more snow and a lot less 100-degree days. But a lot more French, and so it would have been a challenge. But in one of our visits to Montreal, we were walking through the downtown corridor, and one of the things there's a lot of in Montreal is churches which is remarkable because it's also one of the least churched cities in North America. At the time that we were visiting and discerning there, they had the lowest percentage of evangelical Christians of anyone in North America. And so we're walking in and out of these churches because it's this European-flavored style city, and it's gorgeous. And so we walk up to one church, and we try the door, and it opens. And so we walk inside, and no sooner do we get in than we're greeted by an older gentleman who says, hi, how are you doing today? And we say, great. And he's like, would you like me to show you around? And this struck us as different because most of the churches, A, had locked doors, or B, were actually more of a tourist destination, but they never had any quote-unquote tours. You just kind of walked in, took a peek, took a picture, and then slipped out. So this one was different in that the door was open, and then when we were inside, there was this guy that welcomed us and said, hey, let me walk you around. So we walk around, and he shows us, first thing you need to notice is this wood here. This was actually brought over from such and such church in Europe, and it's actually 400 years old, and it's this, and they said it was that, and we're like, oh, this is amazing. He said, now look at these pews. This came from this, and it survived this fire. And we said, whoa. And he goes, now look at the stained glass. Do you know why they use stained glass? It's because so many people were illiterate when they were coming to churches, and so these told the stories of the gospel. And so do you know what story this is telling? And I said, I'm not sure. And he said, well, it's when God reached out and and um, and, and talked 
talk to Elijah. And then this on this side, these are the New Testament passages. And this is where Saul was met on the Damascus Road. And he's taking us through every nook and cranny. And he shows us the altar. And he shows us this. Before we know it, we've been there for an hour. And so as we're starting to kind of wrap up and wind down, he starts to ask us about our story and where we're from. And he listens and very, very politely. And then we say, well, what about you? How long have you been going to this church? He says, I don't go to this church. And we said, oh, sure sounded like it for an hour. And he goes, I'm an atheist. I'm not even a Christian. And we're like, cool, cool. We're on a mission trip. Is this the part where we announce reconciliation and come back to God? And we're sitting there like processing this information like, didn't this guy just preach to us for an hour? And so he said, so tell us, how is it that an atheist welcomes us and shows us around a church and talks about Jesus at us for an hour? And he goes, 50 years ago, I was in a crisis in my life as a young adult, and I was walking the same streets that you're walking this afternoon. And I walked up to a church, and I tried the door, and it was locked. And then I walked down the street because something within me just needed a space to duck in and sit and be alone with my thoughts. And I tried the next door and it was locked. And then I went across to the famous one, surely this is open. And I tried the door and it was locked. And 50 years ago, I decided that whenever I had the time, I was going to be in one of these places to make sure that the church's doors stayed open for people like me. So if you've ever been on a sort of mission trip, you understand that you're often the one being evangelized to. And there was something about this atheist who taught me something I'll never forget about how a church's doors should always stay open. What was the kicker of that story is when we wrapped up and he was saying his goodbye, he had to run over to this small group of like four people that were having soup with the pastor every Wednesday of Lent. So this atheist spends his retirement in a church building, was telling us all about how he ain't a Christian and he's an atheist and he's all this, but if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go have lunch and a discussion with the pastor. This is a not yet, but so close, waking up to new creation. He challenged our way of seeing, and I'll never forget the lesson to keep the door open. And it begs these questions, I think, for us. Who do you know who is just outside the door waiting for your invitation, embrace, and seat at the table? Somebody in your circle just outside needs your words, your works. How can you love them into new life this week? Could you see this week a new way of seeing this person, this interaction? Not to manipulate or twist an arm, but to say, be reconciled to God. There's love and life and a people. Paul was writing this section 
in response to these questions. Paul, why do you act like you do? Paul, why do you suffer like you do? Basically, Paul, why do you keep going? Why are you writing these things? Why do you keep on? And the answer he gives way back at the beginning, I told you we'd talk about again, is in verse 14. He says, Christ's love urges us. We've seen God's love, so we share God's love. Christ's love is our engine. God's reconciling love is remaking us, and he's remaking the world, and we get to participate in it as his ambassadors. He's entrusted us with the message of reconciliation, and all of this is possible because God really loves us more than you have heard or imagined. So finally, a question before our last question. Where was God at the cross? There's some mystery in Jesus' perception of forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is something mysterious happening of Jesus experiencing forsakenness. Maybe it has something to do with him who knew no sin, but became sin on our behalf. But taking that mystery aside, Paul gives us the answer. And it matters. It matters to how you see yourself, how you see others. If you get this next question wrong, you get the whole thing wrong. How do we see God? Where was God fundamentally, at the most fundamental moment of reconciliation? Was he pouring out his wrath on Jesus? Or was he, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself? In other words, is God venting his anger at the world on the whipping boy Jesus? Or is God opening a door to the world as Christ spreads out his arms of love? If you Google the word wrath in the New Testament, you will find many instances. God's wrath is a word and concept and doctrine and true understanding of what it means to have God's feeling toward sin and brokenness and the hell that we make on earth. But if you Google the word wrath or search it on Bible Gateway, you will never find the word wrath in the same verse as the cross. You won't. Because God was not pouring out his anger on Jesus God was revealing his love to the world as he in Christ reconciles it to himself. The difference is fundamental. Your answer will inform how you see others, how you treat others, how you see yourself as a dirty, rotten sinner or a sinner saved by grace and loved anyway. It will change how you see and treat others and yourself. It will change how you relate to God. And just maybe God's reconciling love will seep down into your heart and you can truly see yourself as a beloved child 
that God longed for, so he sought you and bought you, that you might live as a part of his new creation. So a big question to end with then is this. Could it be that much of our problem with sin, shame, and a failure to love are rooted in a failure to embrace that we are embraced? And more than that, we're forgiven. And more than that, we're reconciled to a God who loves us more than we can imagine. Later, Paul will write that he prays for these Ephesians that they would know the heights, the depths, the lengths. And basically what he's saying in this prayer is, I've gone as deep as I can and I couldn't see the bottom of the pool. We're loved in such a reckless and relentless way that God poured out his love without measure. And so whatever it means to experience his wrath at the end of the age is because we failed to see that love and embrace that we're embraced. We've snubbed our nose at God when he's been inviting us home every moment of every day our whole life long. We need to participate in the invitation. We need to invite others. We need to ask ourselves, are we stuck in snap judgments and slotting others like I was? Are we stuck in shame because we haven't actually reconciled in our head and our heart that we're reconciled to God? That you're loved even though you blew it this morning? You turn back and come home and see he's waiting for you? Are we keeping the doors open and inviting others into new creation through the ministry of us as ambassadors at the neighborhood church? The invitation then is to embrace that you're embraced, to participate in the new creation, and to turn back to God who is waiting and longing. And maybe now, to pray for those who are just outside the door, that they may come and experience this meal with us someday. Amen.